Thank you very much for reading, Alex. Lovely to have everyone here. I'm sorry about the, the heat. It feels like home, like Brisbane. But there we go. And very good to have Col and Sally with us today. It's very exciting to have you joining us. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to begin. Great grace was upon them all. We come to you, our Father, as people aware of our own sinfulness, our own unworthiness before you. And yet we thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that covers over all our sins and transforms us. And we pray that we would be reminded of that grace profoundly this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please do keep your Bibles open at page 912 and 913 and examine with me this very shocking and confronting episode in the Bible. It's an unusual episode, two sudden deaths of the members of a church for a lie. The sin in question is hypocrisy, saying one thing outwardly, appearing one thing to man, but inwardly being something else. And I wonder what you think the lessons are to take from it. Donald Barnhouse was a pastor of a famous church, the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for 30 years, between 1930 and 1960. They used to sing the hymn at Calvary at their church. We don't sing it, I think we should sing it, it's a great hymn. The third stanza of the hymn says this, now I have given to Jesus everything, now I gladly own him as my king. Barnhouse, inspired by this passage, would not allow the congregation to sing it. Reportedly, he said, if God acted in the same way today as he does in Acts 5, we would have a morgue in the basement of every church. Hypocrisy. Yes, in one sense, fear and self-examination is a right response to this passage. I know myself, as I've been preparing, coming to grips with the fact that God sees into my heart, he sees the difference between the outward show and the inward re reality. But I do not think this is meant to be a prescriptive passage for us to understand how God is going to deal with hypocrisy in the church. That is quite obvious. It is unique, as so many things are in Acts. But it does have a purpose, I think, for us more widely in Acts. And that is the purpose of Acts as a whole. I've come to the view that Acts is really here to reassure us as Christians. The early church was a church that felt very vulnerable. Persecution from the authorities of the day, the Jewish and Roman rulers. Hostility from family and friends for turning to believe in Jesus as the Christ. But here and now we face another threat. The first time in Acts, a threat from within, the challenge of corruption from within the church. And here we have the curtain pulled back for us by God to understand what lies behind internal corruption in the church, which so unsteadies us and throws us and unsettles us when we come up against it. Verse 3, Satan. Satan, the one who is behind all the threats to the church. Patrick Schreiner is one of the commentators I've been reading, and he says, in many ways, Acts 
can be seen as a series of onslaughts from Satan with the view that we are to be reassured that despite that, even because of that, God's plan to advance the gospel of grace and transform people for the kingdom of His Son will not be thwarted. And so for us this morning, reassurance, God has got it. He sees all the challenges we face and the church faces, internal corruption. The gospel of grace will advance despite that and despite Satan's schemes. And what he does for us and to us is extraordinary. And we need to grasp that. Two things for us this morning. First, the grace of God produces radical generosity. The grace of God produces radical generosity. Look with me, please, to verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that anything of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The number of the church back in chapter 4, verse 4, has grown to 5,000 men. It's the population of Greenwich, where I live, but actually that doesn't count the women and children. My guess is that it's more like the population of Mossman, 28,000 or so. The Word of God has had an explosive power in capturing people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son, to turn to Jesus as the Messiah, to believe that He is the resurrected and anointed Christ. And the Old Testament Scriptures in Deuteronomy, time and again, envisaged a unity for God's people. But if you know anything of the Old Testament, you know that is far from the case. Far from unity was division, time and time again. Ultimately, the nation split in two, north and south. But here and now, the Spirit has entered into the people of God, and the new creation, the place of unity and love and self-giving, has broken in. And they are, verse 32, of one heart. A word resonant from Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that we would have hearts of flesh where we once had hearts of stone. A unity that is supernaturally wrought. A supernatural unity, but also an extraordinary and radical generosity. Do you see that bracketing, verse 33? In verse 32, they had everything in common. And verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Again, Deuteronomy envisaged not a poor person among the community of Israel, but that was not a reality. But here the Spirit of God that Christ has poured out in the new Israel the people of God has caused this radical love for one another. It's not forced, it's not communism, it's voluntary. And it is radical, not just interest income, capital, as they sell their property. And then we have this instance of an individual who lives it out very clearly. Verse 36, Joseph, who's also called Barnabas, we'll see him come up again in the Acts, a Levite, surprisingly. Here, in such contrast to Caiaphas and the other high priests who are full of jealousy, is one of the priestly line who's been turned 
to trust in the Messiah and radically transformed. He, like the others, lays his wealth at the apostles' feet. And the question for us is, how is this possible? It so seems so otherworldly, so extraordinary. Well, the answer is there in verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great power. Great power that isn't actually in signs and miracles and the extraordinary. Great power in preaching in the Word of God, in facing up to the threat of death and isolation and being put out of your community, but speaking by the Spirit of God about the Son of God. Great power about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. We've just seen it in Psalm 2, quoted by Peter. The reality that Jesus is the Son, the Anointed One the one that God has enthroned, the one who will dash his enemies into pieces like a potter's vessel. Great power about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, but characterized by great grace. You see it there in verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. It's very striking to me as I've been reading through Acts that that is one way of summarizing the gospel, grace. Yes, it is about the Lordship of Christ. He will return. That is a reality to judge the living and the dead. But it is now a message of pure grace. Turn back and receive unmitigated, unending, unfathomable forgiveness. I read this week about a man called William Borden. He was born in 1887. He was the heir of a grand fortune, the Borden family of Illinois. But he was converted by the preaching of R.A. Torrey, famous preacher, and he set at that young age his life's mission, which was to go to China to preach the gospel. He went to Yale, the very top university, and he was known for his determination in his study, not because he wanted academic honor, but because he wanted to be prepared to be the best teacher he could. He then went to Princeton Seminary. He was taught by the greats, Warfield and Machen, and after graduation, he headed off to China, but he took a pit stop in Egypt to brush up on his Arabic, as you do. He contracted meningitis, and he died, age 26. But in his Bible were written three words, no, or three phrases rather, no reserve, no reserve. That is, written shortly after he renounced his family fortune to go on mission, keeping nothing in reserve. Secondly, no retreat. This is after his father said to him, you will have no part in the family business, no role for you. No retreat, don't turn back from the plow. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No regrets in a life of radical generosity. Not humanly possible. But because he had grasped in his mind by the Spirit of God the reality of the generosity of God to us in Jesus Christ. And so what for us? Well, radical unity and radical generosity, it can only be achieved by the gospel. Martin Luther said there are three conversions that are necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, 
and the conversion of the purse. And isn't that true? But how is that possible? How is it possible to make self-centered people like us by nature generous, such that we open our wealth for the sake of others? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, unfathomably rich, the heir of all creation, yet for your sake he became poor, a poor man, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That hymn, At Calvary, has another stanza. It says, Mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. Multiplied pardon. Even for the sins of this morning, I deserve to be shut out by God but a pardon that multiplies exponentially daily. There my burdened soul found liberty. Do you know the freedom that comes from knowing forgiveness? If you don't, turn back to God and it will be yours. Next year, we will be really launching in, in a concerted way, our Vision 2030 project. And just to warn you, I will be calling us to radical generosity, to back this vision financially. But there is a temptation for someone like me as a preacher to to beat us up with law and guilt and say, give, because that's the thing you ought to do. And I might get money, and the treasurer might be happy, but we won't get generosity from the heart. No, only the gospel of grace, only being captured by the knowledge that I deserved hell. But he has given me heaven. All of his work. Are you somebody who wants individually a greater heart of generosity? Are we as a church one that wants to be more and more generous, more and more united, more and more like the Lord Jesus? The answer is, it is found only in grasping the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we are devoted to the apostles' teaching. And may I say, to encourage us, he has done it. This gathering is a supernatural gathering. This doesn't happen by accident. Especially in this day and age, people don't come together just because it's a happy morning tea. It's very good morning tea, but... This is because of the work of the Spirit of God through the gospel of Christ. We look out on the division of this world, and it is so awful. And the world tries to think, how could we solve the problems of the Middle East? How could we bring Palestine? You can't. Only the gospel of grace that transforms heart. Only the knowledge of the love of Jesus Christ, Lord and Saviour, is able to bring radical unity and radical generosity. The gospel of grace produces radical generosity, but it is not a picture of unfettered and unmitigated purity and plain sailing. And that's what we see in the next part of our passage. Secondly, The holiness of God overcomes satanic hypocrisy. 
the gospel of the, the, the grace of God produces radical generosity. The holiness of God overcomes satanic hypocrisy. Look with me again to this passage, verse 1. But a man named Ananias, ironically, which means the Lord is gracious, with his wife Sapphira, which means beautiful, and yet she proves so ugly, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. That word kept back is a direct quote and allusion to Joshua chapter 7, when Achan, do you remember, upon the conquest of Jericho, kept back for himself some of the loot. And in verse 3, we see this repeat of what is happening. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back again, there's that word for yourself, part of the proceeds of the land. Instead of being filled with the Spirit, Satan has filled his heart and he has lied to God, but God sees through it all. God, with his divine x-ray eyes, examines our hearts and knows what happens in them and what we have done. And verse 4, the issue is hypocrisy. That is to say, it wasn't a lack of giving. He didn't have to give anything, verse 4. While it was unsold, it was his. And after it was sold, he could have kept all of it. But the issue is that he lied to God, verse 4. Outwardly, for show, for man, he said, I'm very generous. He had the plaque, the Ananias Memorial Hall. <laughs> the Ananias, I don't know, you can, you can, you can imagine the rest. But inwardly, he'd kept back some for himself, and he had lied to God, seeking the reputation of man instead of God. And then tragically, verse 7, his wife comes after. Three hours later, she's tested. She lies. Again, it's hypocrisy. She breathes her last, and she's carried out. And in both cases, this sudden death, this intrusion of the end-time judgment in the presence to warn the burgeoning church is devastating, and everybody takes a gulp and a breath. Verse 5, and great fear came upon all who heard it, and, and verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church. No different from the beginning, just like Adam and Eve, a husband and wife couple who sin, the peace and harmony of God destroyed, Satan involved in the temptation, yet people responsible. Lying to God who sees through us and eventually expelled from the presence of God. No change in human beings since the fall. And there is in the first place, I think, an appropriate warning for us. It's appropriate for us to see here as a fellowship and individually that God sees into our hearts. He sees the difference between the outward profession and the inward reality. And when it comes to money, we need to be very, very careful indeed. It is striking that the original sin of the church, the first thing that emerges out of the church in Acts, is to do with money, to do with finance. And there is a very great temptation for us to appear to be generous outwardly 
to do things in order to be seen as against actually in devotion to God. The Mantle Memorial Gym, which is going to be built over the cottage hall with, you know, Pickno. That would be completely ridiculous given, you know, anyway. (laughs) No, but the outward show is not what matters. It is the inward reality. Somebody has summarized, I think, wonderfully the Sermon on the Mount teaching about money as secrecy safeguards sincerity. Isn't that good? Secrecy safeguards sincerity. And that is a policy I want us to have, and we have here at the church. I mean, I will be calling people to consider their giving, but I have no knowledge, and none of the ministry team have any knowledge, very deliberately, of any of the giving of anyone in the congregation. That's to protect us and to protect you. But there are ways we can give outward signs in subtle means. No, it is between us and God. He is the one who sees. And there will be a judgment. This is the holiness of God. We saw it in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy. I used to get in trouble in England. It's holy, holy, holy. (laughs) But he is a burning fire. And even as I say it, I'm conscious, conscious of the impurity of my own heart. And any of us, if we are real, know that too. And what is the answer? Terror? No, it is a fear that leads to repentance, to turn back in each of those things. It would be a good thing for us to take a moment today, perhaps before this evening finishes, to examine our hearts and ask the Lord to give us repentance in whatever area it is with the glory of the Lord Jesus and his grace in our mind's eye as we do so, knowing he will forgive. First, it's appropriate that we are warned. But secondly, and I think this is the main thrust, that we are reassured, warned but reassured. Many of us saw the scandal of Ravi Zacharias a number of years ago prominent Christian leader, sexual scandal, financial scandal. And it rocked so many people. I think in my own experience, in the UK, a number of us will know a man called Jonathan Fletcher, my own pastor. A hero called my son after him. And yet scandal. And it has rocked the church. But we should not be surprised. For Satan is like a roaring lion, and from within, these things will come. But, God sees it. And God has a greater concern for the advance of His church, for the radical transformation of His people, for the glory of His Son, than anything Satan throws at us. And so here and now in Sydney, when we are beset by ongoing challenge and persecution from the authorities. As we experience the hostility of our neighbours and our loved ones for our belief in Christ. As we are thrown 
by the sin of our own community, which will happen. Nevertheless, we need to be absolutely reassured that God's planned advance of His kingdom through the preaching of the grace of His Son will not be stopped. It cannot be stopped. And think of what He has done, even here today, and down all the ages and across the world. Radical transformation like nothing this world can do. No policy of any politician. No education of any educator. No, he and he alone. Does it? He alone is the one who will triumph. The grace of God produces radical generosity. The holiness of God overcomes satanic hypocrisy. We pray together. We are ever conscious, our Father, of our own failings and our own sin. And yet we thank you for the radical grace that you have poured out in your Son. We thank you as those who turn back to him in the power of your Spirit, we will and do receive full forgiveness for all of our sins. And in so doing, you have transformed us and brought us to one another. And we ask, our Father, that you would drive deep the knowledge of this grace in our hearts every day, that we might be part of this gospel advance. And we ask it for the glory and the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.